Welcome everyone to episode 71 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica, and this is once again another bonus episode, kind of best of 2020. In 2020, I've interviewed some absolutely amazing guests, and they've just opened up. They've been so courageous, and they've shared their stories. A lot of them pretty traumatic, and you know, but I'm talking to them, so that means they came out on the other side. So, and, they, and there's lessons to be learned there. So for all these individuals, I really encourage you to go back and listen to their episodes if you haven't yet. All these ones on here, super, super powerful. But we're going to start off with my buddy Ben Vernon from San Diego. He was back in actually episode 32 and then also in episode 33. And we also brought in his clinician, Dr. Mark Foreman, into episode 33. So uh, Ben, San Diego firefighter, uh, was actually stabbed on scene. So, I mean, he had... The actual, you know, traumatic events, but beyond that, just the nightmares and the suicidal thoughts and everything else that accompanied that, you know, down the road, uh, he had to deal with as well. So let's just uh, bring Ben in uh, right now for you. So my captain is standing behind me, um, and and I'm every time I get a piece of information, I just kind of relay it to my captain, and he's recording it. So my captain is trying to look at the iPad and he's trying to take care of the information that's necessary. But the bystander, you know, Stabby now kind of gets in his face and says, you know, I was trying to help you guys and you're not being very nice or respectful. And my captain uh, just wasn't in the mood. You know, he wasn't in a good mood. We're we're all tired. We've been running calls all day. And uh, my captain just goes, look, man, I, I heard... My guys ask you to leave. I heard the trolley guys ask you to leave. Now I'm asking you to leave. Like, we've, we've got this. You know, he's like, I'm putting all the information in this iPad. We're taking care of this guy. Like, we got this. We don't need your help anymore. And the bystander got pissed, and he starts putting his finger in my captain's chest and goes, you know, I'm not going anywhere, and, you know, you can't do anything about it. And my captain puts his hand on this guy's chest, and he says, hey, you know, give us space. And he pushes the guy back, and the guy trips over a park bench. Um, what would seem very harmless, you know, you, you push a guy and he trips over a park. The, the reaction was, was 10 times more than we expected because, again, we'd only been on scene for about a minute, a minute and a half, maybe like 90 seconds, not realizing that this guy has been fighting and arguing and, and you know, almost getting into a fistfight with the security guards before we arrived for 20 minutes. And so what seemed like 90 seconds and a fairly harmless event, my captain pushes this guy over. Well, this guy, this bystander, man, I mean, that was the trigger that kind of set him off. That was the culmination of 20 minutes of, of arguing and anger. So he gets up off the ground and just starts swinging. And he actually goes after the security guards. So, so, so just... The confusion from our side, right, is my captain goes, hey, man, I push you over. You got, jump up and punch a security guard? Like, what the hell is going on? And, and so the security guards, you know, immediately they, they are ready because they have been dealing with this guy for 20 minutes. So everybody's moving at a faster pace than us, right? My team, my four firefighters are just kind of stuck flat-footed, just going, what is happening? as just this melee breaks out. This, this bystander, he happened to be uh, six foot five, 240 pounds, a wiry, strong, uh, 
Um, again, as I as I learned a year later, uh, he was an ex-felon. So this guy has been in prison. Uh, he is fit and he is sober and he is pissed. So he, he takes on these security guards. There's five of them, and he starts beating the crap out of a couple of them pretty bad. I mean, like hitting them, you know, full swings right to the face. I mean, he's just tagging these guys. Um, and they crowd him, and they they tackle him, but they end up spilling over a, a railing that kind of separates the trolley riders from pedestrians on the sidewalk. So the city had put this railing right down the middle of the sidewalk to, to make, you know, transitioning to and from the trolley easier. And then pedestrians, you know, people on skateboards could could go by and, and they wouldn't be running into each other. So the sidewalk is cut in half. And, and so this fight spills over this railing and it separates almost all of us. Um, of the nine, right, five security guards and four firefighters, eight of us are on one side of the railing. As as the bystander goes over the railing, he gets up onto his feet. Well, there's just one poor security guard who's standing on the other side of the railing. <laughs> so this bystander immediately grabs that one poor security guard, and now it's just one-on-one, -on -one, and he is just pounding him in the face, like harder than I've ever seen but get hit in the face. And, and, you know, I've now turned my attention from my patient. I'm watching this fight break out. And my first thought is, oh, man, I need to save the security guard. The security guard's in real trouble. So I jump over the railing easily. It was only three feet high. You know, it was, it was very easy to scale. I jumped it in one swift, easy jump. And as he's hauling back to punch this guy, I actually trap his arm. I get in between both of these men. And I use my hands, I put them on their chest, and I break them apart, and I push them away. And I'm screaming, hey, stop fighting. You know, what is going on? Keep in mind, I didn't know for 20 minutes this has been building. Uh, I didn't know that my captain had pushed this guy down. You know, I didn't know any of these things. All I know is I'm dealing with my drunk patient. I hear a fight. I turn around, and this this bystander is beating the crowd of security guards. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, this fight has come from nowhere. I'm thinking, you know, something has happened in the past two seconds that I'm unaware of. So as I split these men up, I actually turn my attention to the security guard. And I go, dude, are you okay? And he, you know, his eyes were kind of swimming and he looked dazed, but he's still on his feet and uh, he's not bleeding. And he says, no, man, I'm, I'm okay. You know, I'll be all right. And I said, okay. I said, stand by. Like, I will take care of you medically in one second but let me talk to this bystander and find out what I can do to dissipate the problem. Again, as, as only the video shows, in that couple seconds where I split these guys up, the mistake I made is I gave this guy a chance to regroup and rearm. And so as I pushed them apart, he reached into his back pocket and he pulls out a, a knife. Um, Again, not realizing he's a felon, this guy has learned how to knife fight in prison. And so he keeps the blade behind him. He keeps it, you know, out, but he's hidden. Um, but he's ready now to go to work with the knife. I, I turn my attention now, because I've jumped over the railing, I'm the only one, along with that security guard, I'm, I'm the only one on the other side of that railing. My entire team is behind me. Um, and I am now squared off 
one-on-one, face-to-face with this bystander. Um, it takes me, you know, a half a second to realize it's the guy that gave me a turnover just 10 seconds ago. And I'm like, oh, hey, buddy, like, it's me again. Like, what happened? What's going on? You know, you and I had a cool rapport. You gave me a turnover for 30 seconds. Like, why are you so upset? Now, I didn't have time to say all that, but that's kind of where I'm at in my head, just going, oh, wow, this guy again. Like, hey, what's up? And I said, easy, buddy, you know, what's going on? Talk to me. And he's got a look in his eye I've never seen before. He, (laughs) I mean, he's a predator, and I am definitely the prey. Um, And he just looked right through me. And I remember him saying, I got you now, uh, motherfucker. I don't know if we can cuss on your show, but, you know, that's what he said. I got you now, motherfucker. And I remember just going, well, that's not good, right? Like, that's not good. I don't see the knife, but I do see his hand behind him. And I remember just thinking, what is in his hand? You know, what is that? Why is he keeping his body like that? And, and again, you know, my brain cannot process fast enough. So I'm just, is that wallet? Is that an ID? Did he pull out a knife? Is that a gun? Like, what is happening? And so I got my hands up in a defensive position, and I'm just going, hey, man, talk to me. Like, why are you so pissed off? And he says, I got you now. And I remember, well, that's not good. And so I try to back up, and I'm, I'm you know, backpedaling, and I hit that railing, that three-foot railing, and, and I cannot describe the sensation of just suddenly feeling trapped, right? Like, I can't back up anymore. I can't move. I'm stuck. And now I know it's one-on-one, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the brunt of this guy's attack. And so I remember just that, that feeling like, like panic, like, oh, God, I've hit a wall. You know, I'm stuck. And so he comes flying at me. He's only maybe five or six feet from me, so he's real close. But he gets right up chest to chest, and he starts punching me in the back. And I remember, you know, I just kind of braced for the punch, thinking, you know, I'll take a couple hits, no big deal. But when he punched me in the back, I remember thinking, man, that's such a weird way to punch somebody. I've never been in a fist fight where you try to hit the guy in the back, right? I mean, that was just a weird motion. Uh, I didn't feel the knife. I didn't feel any pain at first. Um, So he stabbed me low, just below my kidney on my left side. And then he pulled the knife out and he stabbed me in the chest, just behind my shoulder blade. Um, On the left side, he broke a rib and punctured my lung. And then when he pulled the knife out of my chest, he tried to stab me in the head. As it turned out, the, all the air in my lung went out sideways. Um, it knocked the wind out of me. And so I kind of doubled over because it, you know, it winded me. And as I doubled over, he tried to stab me in the head, and he missed. The knife went through my hair. Uh, so, it, you know, he was a centimeter from sticking me in the side of my head in my temporal lobe right above my ear. So he, he would have killed me instantly. It would have been a... It would have been a death blow. Um, But he missed. He hit me in the head, but the knife went through my hair. It kind of knocked me over sideways. And my partner, who was taking care of the drunk patient, he saw the guy attacking me. He didn't see the knife, but he just saw the guy punching me. And he said, oh, hell no. I'm not going to let that guy punch my partner. So he jumps over the railing as well, and he football tackles this guy and lands on top of him. Well, the guy still had a knife in his hand, and his hands were free. So while my partner's laying on top of him trying to pin him to the ground, the guy just reaches around and stabs my partner in the back uh, three times. So the two of us stabbed a total of five times in about two or three seconds, like just lightning fast.
All right, next up is retired uh, Captain Chris Fields from Oklahoma City Fire. Uh, he was there on uh, April 18, 1995, when the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building exploded, killing 168 people. You know, he was just 17 blocks away when he responded. Uh, he was part of that Pulitzer Prize winning photo with uh, one-year-old Bailey Allman. And uh, on this clip, he just kind of talks about responding and, and being past Bailey and um, just kind of goes over the incident, not really the aftermath, which is very significant as well. So again, I encourage you to go check that out. That was all the way back, not, not too terribly long ago, but episode 58. So without further ado, let's bring in Captain Chris Fields. And so I just remember it was around 9 a.m. We were standing in the kitchen, me and the other two officers and the, and the new guy. We let him off mowing and all that so he could go cook. But uh, we, um, you know, we felt it. We heard it. My station at the time was uh, the Murrah Buildings on Northwest 5th. We were on Northwest 22nd. So we were just 17 blocks just straight north of, of the Murrah Building. And like I said, we felt the station rattle and shake. The windows rattled and... Uh, we thought a train had derailed across, right across from the station. We had an old Borden ice cream plant and um, it was still on, open and operating, had a train, you know, yard there. So we thought maybe a train had derailed, went out the uh, east door of the station to look and didn't see anything. And we looked back to the south and saw the, the plume of smoke. And uh, we just immediately self-dispatched ourselves and, uh, so, and I like doing these shows where people know when I say don't self-dispatch what I'm, what I'm talking about. Sometimes I'll have to go back and explain, but, uh, no, we just self-dispatched uh, ourselves. And, uh, that's what was funny. There was guys, one guy that was out, uh, weed eating, he was facing North. So his back was towards the Murrah building area and he felt a rush of wind at his back when it happened. He didn't know what happened. But he thought, uh, we're not far from Tinker Air Force Base. So he thought jets were doing flybys. He thought it was like a sonic boom or something from a jet. And so he just kept on weed eating. We had to stop and actually get his attention and get him on the rig to go. But um, once we started getting probably about six or seven blocks away, we started seeing uh, buildings with the storefronts uh, blown out. And, um, you know, knew it was pretty significant at that time, you know. It, and it came in, there was a little screw up on the address. We have the federal building that has all the federal offices in it. And we have a federal courthouse, which is adjacent and kind of behind it. So, but we knew it was going to be on fourth or fifth street. So we had a ways to go and just figured something there exploded. And it was blowing out windows, you know, eight, nine, 10 blocks away. And at the time we were thinking, a you know, natural gas explosion, uh, or a, uh, a welder's torch, maybe because there was some, a lot of, uh, construction going on in the area, uh, a lot of steel being welded and stuff. So we thought maybe a settling torch or something. And um, we got down there on the, we came in from the east side and uh, really couldn't see the building at first very good. There's a little hill you had to kind of walk up over on the street. So the first thing we did was set up a triage uh, across the street. There was a YMCA daycare. YMCA building had a daycare in it. Um, at that time, we didn't even know there was a day, or I didn't, we didn't know there was a daycare in the actual federal building also, the America Kids day, Daycare. So we just set up that triage there and um, spent about probably 10 or 15 minutes there. And that's when the incident commander at the time 
called for my, my unit hazmat five to uh, come down to the actual building site and assist uh, uh, I think we assist the police department with getting the lady out of the basement um, she wasn't trapped by any uh, rubble and that she was like tangled up in like suspension wire from the suspended ceiling you know and that kind of acoustic ceiling and and this, of course the sprinkler lines were kind of flooding the basement a little bit everything was busted so we got her out of the building and uh, you know we completed that assignment and he told us to go around to the south side of the building and I can't remember exactly who but told us who our you know division leader or whatever it would be at that time to report to them and um, that's the time when uh, Sergeant Avery who was a police officer came around it was at that time when he came around and he was holding Bailey and said he had a critical infant and um, you know I, I took uh, took I just said here you know I'll take her and um, you know at that time 1995 uh, police officers weren't as trained probably as they are now in first aid and all that and he was just looking for, for, for some help and, um, and I'm still friends with him and talk to him today and uh, he said I was the third, third or fourth person that he came in contact with that actually said, you know, here, I'll take her. Everybody else just kept pointing him to different directions, you know, which, uh, so, so I took Bailey from him and, um, uh, you know, checked her for any signs of life at that time. And, and she was had already passed. Uh, she uh, had a slight open skull fracture and her mouth was full of uh, concrete dust and, and things like that. But I checked her for any signs of life. I couldn't find any. And across the street, I saw uh, our ambulance service, uh, IMSA. So I walked over there to them and uh, told the paramedic there, I said, hey, I've got a, uh, I said, same thing he told me. I said, I've got a critical infant, you know, and uh, it's kind of weird. I, I can look back now. You know, I didn't know about, we'll get into it, I know, but I didn't know about the photo until like 11 o'clock that night. But I didn't see it for the first time until the next morning. But when seeing the photo, I know what I was doing and when it was, because the, the actual photo is really a lot bigger than they cropped it down to just the photo of me and Bailey. But the, the original big picture, you can see the paramedic on the ground. And what he's telling me is that, uh, let me get a blanket because we're not gonna put that baby on the ground because the ambulance was full and they had person on the bench, on the floor, on the cot, and there were several backboards on the ground, all had people laying on them. So I was just standing there waiting for him to get a blanket. And I remember just looking at her thinking, you know why you know somebody's world is going to be turned upside down today you know and i had a two-year-old son at the time so i you know i knew baby was close in age she'd just turned year a year old the day before the bombing was her year birthday april 18th so um it was um you know like i say it hit, hit really hit home you know knowing that i had one close to that age and you know that was just one of them at the time it was just part of the day because as soon as that uh paramedic um took her from me i went and caught up with my crew you know and for we worked we were finally sent back to the station at 11 o'clock that night you know uh we did hit r and r i think once in that time period but after that it was you know 11 at night before they sent us back but and and for my crew and i know there were still being people brought out alive all day long and uh, but from for my crew and our where we were at um it was pretty much a uh just a recovery uh, we did come across one young lady named Sheila Driver that we dug out of the rubble. Uh, she was 28 years old. She was pregnant. Uh, we were actually talking to her. I mean, I, I wrote down all of her information 
Um, we had, had set up a rigging system because we were down this pit area. So we got her packaged up and they pulled her up out of the area and got her on the way to the hospital. And we found out the next morning that she had passed away on the way to the hospital, her and her unborn child. So um, other than coming across her, and that was like right after I caught up with my crew, the rest of the day to 11 o'clock that night was just pretty much a uh, recovery recovery uh, mode for us. And, uh, you know, I don't get too graphic, but it was everything from, you know, finding people to just, to just find and, and, and body parts, you know, and it was just a, it was just a total different experience. You know, there's, there's training and there's reality and you can never train for, for that type of reality. So it was just, uh, like I say, it was a long, long, tedious day. And like I say, I, I just talked to a guy the other day and he was asking me, you know, when did you have time to reflect on what you'd seen and done that day? And it really, it was, it was like at 11 o'clock that night when I finally got back with my crew, all of our crew together in the rig. That's just kind of what we did. You know, you just finally got to take that deep breath. And that's when we just kind of started processing stuff and kind of, you know, just talking about things a little bit. But uh, that was the first time that you really had a, had a chance to reflect on what we saw and, and what we did. And, you know, and one of the main things we all said almost in the same breath was, when you see that building for the first time, nine stories pancake down on top of each other, and and 168 is a is a is a terrible loss. But if you'd have told me there's only going to be 168 fatalities out of that, I would have I would have said that's a blessing. You know, I mean, just to look at the building and think that, and I, I don't say only with any disrespect, but but only 168 people uh, perished was a was a was a blessing seriously all right so next up on this bonus episode is my buddy captain dana ali from the rally rally whatever however you say it north carolina uh, fire department uh she's all the way back in episode 29 and also episode 30 but uh on this clip i'm going to play you she's going to talk about being bullied at the firehouse being depressed at the firehouse and starting to have suicidal thoughts and kind of how she got through all that so without further ado let's bring in dana so unbeknownst to me uh when i got promoted and got promoted as quickly as i did i i guess i ruffled some feathers and um annoyed some people uh so i didn't know that i had i was developing haters in the peripherals because I, I just didn't know but um i moved to station 17 right around the time of this assignment. And one of the guys on my crew, uh, he had been on the fire department since 97. A great guy, everybody seemed to like him. Uh, he wasn't a very motivated guy, like after lunch, uh, he was that guy that would like go to his cube and disappear and nobody would go bother him. We'd, we'd train, we'd clean stuff and everybody'd be like, oh yeah, um, you know, he's, he's in his cube. Uh, he, it's all good, he's been here long enough that he doesn't have to be a part of the team, I guess. But um, from day one, he, he didn't speak to me. And so I'd been used to people, you know, needing time to get to know me, especially, uh, you know, over the years I've learned in the fire service that sometimes it does take some of the guys, especially the guys that have been here a long time, a little bit of time to get used to women. Um, so I, I, I was used to people initially maybe having an issue, but I knew that if I just did my job, did it well, and treated people with respect, that um, it wouldn't last because I'd never had a situation where it lasted 
you know, more than a couple of weeks after somebody got to know me. So I just went into it with the idea that I'm going to be myself. I'm going to do a good job and, you know, he'll come around and we'll be a team. And it just didn't happen. It seemingly just got worse. It went from him not talking to me to him talking about me to, um, you know, him getting the guys on the ladder to kind of team up against me. Uh, and it got really, it just got really tough on me because, I, I didn't realize, and it's funny, it, it actually just last year, I kind of understood more about why it led me to get depressed, but um, the situation made me depressed. I felt kind of, you know, I blamed myself for it. I was like, man, there's something wrong with me. I'm obviously not likable. Uh, I'm obviously not deserving of this permission. So I, I just looked inward um, and was frustrated with myself. And every day I try to come in with a positive attitude. Uh, every day I try to come in and do a good job and it seemed like it just wasn't enough. And so every day when I got off work, you know, I kind of beat myself up. And I remember there were several days I'd get off work and I'd drive home and, you know, I'd break down and cry because of that just frustration of just trying so hard and, you know, feeling like a failure, um, feeling like I didn't belong, feeling like I wasn't a part of the family. Um, it really sucked. And, um, you know, the worst part was there was nobody to talk to about it because, you know, it's really embarrassing to tell somebody like, yeah, the guys at my firehouse don't like me. I'm not cool. So I, I kept it to myself. I tried to hide it. My family, you know, very proud of me. Uh, you know, so I couldn't tell any of them. Uh, so I had to make them all believe that everything was perfect. Um, and then as it built, it just, it, it I guess I, I, I kind of pushed myself into this like silence and secrecy of what I was experiencing because I was so humiliated by it. And, you know, I knew that people got depressed. I knew that people died by suicide. And I looked at what I was dealing with as being so insignificant compared to the problems of the world. I was like, what right do I have to complain because this guy doesn't like me when people have real problems, people have PTSD, people have lost family members. Um, so I, that made me even just more humiliated by it that I just kind of, you know, it built up. So that's why when Chief Hobson asked me looking at suicide, it was super ironic because it, you know, didn't just happen right away, but over the course of a few months, um, I started to think about suicide. I think um, the more depressed I got, uh, the more I just forced myself into silence, um, the more I started trying to escape that, like, miser like, the miserable feeling that I felt, the excruciating pain that I felt. And so suicide started to come to mind. Initially, you know, it might have come to mind, like, once a week, and then once a day, and then several times a day. And, um, the more I thought about it, the more shame I built because I was like, oh, my God, I'm thinking about something so awful. If anybody finds out, like, uh, you know, it's going to make everything even worse. So, you know, it was just overwhelming and frustrating. So as I started to get into the research, um, everything started to make sense to me. And so, like, today I look and I'm just so grateful because uh, for people, understanding circumstances are it's just so powerful. So I get into the research and I learned that it's not, you know, the bad calls that we see that lead to, you know, our suicide. A lot of times suicide stems from disconnection um, and feeling like you're not worthy and um, not belonging. Uh, so as I was learning about that stuff and learning about alienation and how, you know, firefighters, you know, we, we, we feel this responsibility to the community we serve and we don't want to show any weakness or vulnerability. So when we are feeling that way, we hide it. And uh, the biggest thing that really like hit me was when I read the line that said, you know, how dangerous suppression, suppressing emotions are and how le that leads to, you know, further alienation. I was like, oh, my gosh, that is what I'm experiencing. 
So as I got into it, it connected with me. It helped me to understand what I was dealing with. And so then I, I just got on this, um, you know, I just got this passion for it. And I was like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to save all the firefighters. I'm going to, you know, solve the suicide problem. And uh, so I further dove into it. Between, between all that research um, and kind of even having just that thrown on your lap and it just, you know, being kind of a godsend in a way, you also had a friend who um, kind of called you out on, kind of could see what was going on and, and, and actually finally kind of got to you as well. Is, is that right? Oh, yeah. And it's, um, it's really cool because I think back to what he did and the way he did it. Um, and even today, like as I teach peer support, I use them as an example. And, you know, today when I think about helping people, I, I use him and the, his process as an example. So uh, one of my close friends, we went through the academy together, Brian McGinnis. Um, he ended up marrying my cousin and we, we became very close. So we, we were in, in contact, you know, every other week we hung out a lot. Uh, when things went good, we called each other. When things went bad, we called each other. Well, during this time, and I didn't realize I was doing it, and actually it took a couple years to even understand it, but, you know, when I learned now that when people are depressed uh, and when people are thinking about suicide, sometimes they um, self-isolate and, you know, they push people away. And I I didn't realize I was doing it, but I was doing it. So I was pushing, you know, the people that I loved the most, the people that were closest to me away. I felt little self-worth. I, you know, I, I looked inward and I didn't like what I saw. And so I didn't want the people I love to be close to me. So me and Brian, like we got into a stupid fight, me and my cousin who we married, we got in a stupid fight and, um, I just kind of pushed them away and I didn't want anything to do with them. And Brian tried to call a couple times. And every time he called, you know, uh, you know, the fight was over, we were good, but I didn't want to talk. And, so he would call about once a week and just, you know, hey, partner, I just want to check in. And sometimes I wouldn't call back. Sometimes, you know, I'd text back and be like, hey, I'm all good. Um, and then sometimes, uh, you know, I'd answer and I'd be really quick. Well, you know, he didn't give up. He did this uh, for several weeks. And finally, uh, one day things were just really bad. Um, I don't know what had happened the day before, um, but I just knew I was just in a really bad place. And I was I was. I was desperate. I was at that point where I was miserable. I, I was desperate. I, I needed help. I wanted help. Uh, I didn't know how to ask for help. And uh, luckily, Brian called and, uh, you know, just in a very jo- non-judgmental way, he was like, hey, partner, um, just want to let you know I love you and uh, hope you're doing good. And that day, I just um, let it all go. It was like diarrhea of the mouth. I, I started crying. I told him everything that was going on, told him what was going on at work, told him how I was feeling. Um and, and he was just so awesome because his response was uh, so authentic um, and just so heartfelt, uh, like empathy. It was like the exact definition of empathy because I could tell in his response that he felt the same pain that I felt as I shared my story. And he said, man, that fucking sucks. I am so sorry that you have to go through that. You don't deserve it. And it, it was amazing how just such a simple response helped me to recognize that I didn't deserve it and that yes this fucking sucks um and that it is okay to like share it it is okay you know to speak about it it's not humiliating it's not silly um it it just really fucking sucks and I hope I didn't ruin your podcast by using that language but the language is important I would I would never ever say those words just to let you know (laughs) I am a saint but no it (laughs) 
Uh, you know, I spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago at the uh, Ohio Association Professional Firefighters Conference, and I said those words. But I, I mean, I made it like it helped make my point. And I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I, in my head, I was like, I'll really emphasize this with the fuck word. Yeah, oh. and I get it like that. You you shouldn't use language, um, but <coughs> in that in that situation, that language was necessary. At least you know our conversation, the two of us. Um, and, and the way he used it, because I knew that he felt the pain that I felt and he expressed it and it helped me. It, it helped me so much. Like there was this huge weight that had been on my shoulders that um, truly like it was lifted. It was like a turning point um, from that conversation forward. Uh, and it was just nice to know that I didn't have to hold it all within because um, holding a lot of pain, holding all that within. Oh, my goodness. It's heavy. All right, next up is Dr. David Griffin. He's all the way back in episode 36. And in this clip, he's going to discuss, kind of do a brief synopsis of the Sofa Superstore fire back on June 18th, 2007. Uh, Dr. Griffin was the first in engine operator. Uh, the remaining of that episode, ep uh, episode 36, really discusses his post-traumatic growth, how he, how he really dealt with everything in the aftermath of, of this horrific scene. So let's bring in Dr. Griffin. So the Soma Superstore fire, it occurred on June 18th, 2007, Charleston, South Carolina, 1807 Savannah Highway, which is a little over a couple of miles from the actual city of Charleston, the downtown city. I'd been on a job for a couple of years at that point. I just made a backup driver about two months before June 18th. So I was in my new capacity as an assistant engineer was my position. And in that capacity, I was eagerly waiting on my first fire to put my training to use and test myself, as most people like to do. Well, that day, I had gone to work my normal operational procedure, done the things that I usually do, gone through my routine. I wasn't really big on training back then. I really wasn't big on a lot of things back then. It was just go to work, do your job, and go home. And that was unfortunate because I missed about two years of my career where I could have learned a lot. That day we did our normal stuff around the station, checked the truck off, cleaned the station, did some things together as a company, went to the grocery store, bought dinner, came back, sat down and ate dinner. About five o'clock after dinner, myself and the firefighter went out back and started to clean the rig. And as we cleaned the rig, um, someone drove by the Sofa Superstore and saw some smoke. It was just a civilian. Ended up calling 911 to report the fire. And from there we were dispatched obviously. And we arrive on scene. And as we arrive on scene, it's a trash fire, but it's a pretty significant trash fire. But as we're trying to figure out which way to play this, we, we take a detour around the back of the building because we're trying to really find where the fire is because it's really hard to determine. So as we take that detour back around the front, there's another engine that beats us there. And they're already actively trying to fight the fire with a couple of hose lines. A ladder truck arrives on scene. I end up at the front of the building. And at this point, things are starting to get really confusing. We're trying to figure out where supply lines coming from, what other engines do we have on scene. Guys are starting to go inside, but at this point, the building is pretty much clear. There's not a lot of smoke inside of the building. It's just in the loading dock area, which was an extension of the showroom, if you will. So as guys start to continue to go inside the building and look for the active fire, the fire unfortunately is already in the concealed space above the showrooms. So the building, it was 
nine foot was a false ceiling. Between the false ceiling and the actual roof structure, which is about four to five feet, there was lightweight truss construction. So that those trusses were being heated up while our guys were in there, unbeknownst to most of us until we started to pop some tiles and we saw the smoke. And then obviously the smoke is starting to mushroom around the guys and then guys are becoming disoriented. And I'm hearing of one guy missing all the way up to one point somebody tells me we're missing over 26 people. And at that point, I'm standing at the pump handle at the front of the building. I'm probably 30 feet from the front door. And I'm attempting to pump the fire to the best of my knowledge, but I realized that day that my knowledge level wasn't where it was supposed to be. And I truly believe that I could have made myself a better driver if I would have taken the job more serious. And unfortunately, that's the truth for a lot of people on the profession. They think they know it until the day they don't know it. And unfortunately, that's the day that is too late. And I was that guy. And so trying to figure out what I'm doing, I can't get the supply line uh, connected correctly. It's hard to get the truck to go in the pump because there's a little quirk with the truck. I'm having to try to figure out, waiting on the supply line, multiple lines are being pulled off my rig. I'm going into a vacuum because I don't understand why I'm going into a vacuum because we did not have any large diameter hose. The only supply hose we had was two and a half supply line. My supply line was 1,850 feet in total length. 1,750 feet of three, excuse me, 1,750 feet of two and a half connected to 100 feet of three inch. So that was my supply line for this over 42,000 square foot building full of furniture. And at that time, I didn't realize that that wasn't enough volume of water because I had never really worked with volume of water. I had never used five inch or anything like that. So I'm doing what I've always done, thinking there's going to be a different result. And that just didn't work out. So after we start to do accountability, we start to realize that we have quite a few people missing, but we're just not sure until we do get a list of eight people. And unfortunately, once we get the list of eight people, one of the first bodies is found and that person wasn't even on the list of eight people that we had found to be missing. So we were still actively finding people hoping that that was the correct amount. So ended up nine good firefighters lost their lives. As they lose their lives that night, we're sending guys in to obviously recover their bodies, waiting for the coroner to arrive so we can pull the bodies out. So that was about 10.30 p.m. from my recollection is the first body that came out, and that was engineer Brad Beatty. He was the engineer on Engine 19. His entire crew and himself lost their lives that night. So as the crews pull them out, pull him out of the building, I was not on the recovery teams or the search crews. I was outside at the pump panel. So I can only imagine what those guys, my friends, went through inside the building trying to find these guys that were buried under lightweight trusses. They were buried under furniture. A lot of their gear was um, not intact, obviously, because they were burned so severely. And so as they're pulling the guys out, the first one is Brad Beatty. We line up in a sea of blue. We salute Brad Beatty. And for me, that's when it got very real. I didn't really process it until I saw them carrying Brad Beatty out. And then from about 10.30 p.m. until about 4.30 a.m., recovery efforts continued, and we continued to pull the rest of the nine guys out of there until Brandon Thompson was the last person to be removed. It was about 4.30-ish in the morning, and his dad and his brother were actually there to help with that recovery process, so that was very hard to, to see as well. So as they pulled the last person out, which was firefighter Brandon Thompson, he was actually working a a buddy shift for somebody, and then he got switched over to the ladder truck, which puts to, put him on ladder five. 
So think about the moves that took place to put him inside the building. So after this takes place, we're all trying to console each other, really trying to figure out what is going on. It was kind of hard to process. Most of our engines are running out of fuel. So our shop was bringing us five gallon buckets of diesel fuel with a funnel to refuel our rigs that were still running outside. Sun starts to come up a little after 6.30ish and you have a lot of news cameras there, a lot of different people there from other fire departments just trying to help out. You had Red Cross there, chaplains were there. Down the street at the station that I was at, that's where the most of the family of the Fallens, of the Fallen was. They were trying to console each other. You had city council members there. You had uh, chaplains there. My wife was actually there trying to figure out if I was one of the nine guys because she hadn't heard from me and we had not released the names yet. So as that takes place, uh, my wife said it was very, very bad environment down there. We weren't prepared for anything like that. Most places aren't. So I was actually told just to hang out at the scene and someone would bring me my little red pickup truck to go home. So I, I remember doing that and Somebody brought my truck to the scene, handed me my keys, and that was pretty much it. And I drove home from there. And as I tried to make my way home, I realized that I wasn't processing really what I had just gone through. I was still kind of running off adrenaline. And once the adrenaline wore off, I had to pull off the side of the road and kind of collect myself and process everything that was going through my mind. So once I did that, made my way home, and I saw my wife, and obviously she was very upset. And I said, sweetheart, I just, I don't really want to talk about it right now. All right. Now following Dr. David Griffin, it makes sense to just punch in Travis Howes. Uh, he was also a Charleston firefighter. Uh, he did not respond to the scene initially, but he was there and he was part of the recovery team as well and found his friend. So, uh, it's the same fire, the Sofa Superstore fire, uh, back on June 18th, 2007 from really a different perspective, different point of view. Uh, so he kind of goes over, uh, you know, responding and, and, and finding his friend uh, amongst other the other Charleston firefighters that were deceased. Uh, Travis is uh, actually a three-part series, episode 41, 42, and 43. And uh, just an awesome guy, and I can't wait for him to show up dating her Columbus Funny Bone and uh, get some Waffle House together. So let's bring Travis in. I could have left, man, right after that Superstore fire. I mean, I I knew I was not going to be um, the same again. I didn't realize how bad it was going to get for me. But we had a lot of guys leaving. They were like, I, I just can't even fucking come back after this. And we lost, I don't know the numbers, but our turnover rate was like nobody had ever seen. I mean, we lost well over half our department in the first year. I mean, guys, it was like mass exodus. It was people – Guys had been on the job 30 years that were just, they were just like, fuck this. I'm, I'm out. I'm leaving. Guys that had been on 20 years, like, I'm done. I'm, I'm 10 years. I'm done. I just, that fire fucked a lot of people up. Um, I stayed. I had this, this arrogant pride about me that I'm going to, I'm going to ride this, ride this rig for my brothers and I'm going to honor them. I'm going to become a captain. I'm going to protect my crew. Um, but the, the truth is, I got sick after that and I got very mentally ill and it got to a point where I wasn't honoring them. I was actually doing them more of a disservice than I was a service, no matter how hard I tried, but I fully intended on staying for 30 years. 
when you say ill, you're talking about the the alcohol. You're talking about the anger. No, I'm talking about the the depression. Depression. The, okay. The PTSD, the survivor's guilt. I didn't believe in all that stuff before all of this, and uh, it took me getting diagnosed and really realizing through my behavioral patterns and just how destructive I was being in my life, my, my, um, not wanting to live anymore, talking about all of that and all of that reflected eventually would reflect on the emergency scenes I would go to. I mean, I, I became combat ineffective, man. And it was, uh, it's not an easy thing to say. I would show up on scenes and just look at people that were hurting and wouldn't even treat them just kind of in my mind, like, hey, fuck them. You know what I mean? And it's, Everywhere I went, I saw my dead friends that, you know, that I had to pull out of that fire. And it was, it fucks you up, man. And, but despite all that, I tried staying on the job. And then, but the, um, I don't think this is the right point in the, in the podcast to talk about it, but we'll get to it. It's uh, when everything came to a head for me is uh, cost me my career. All right. Now touching on that fire. I know uh, you weren't assigned to it. You ended up showing up anyway, um, which, I mean, that's that's what happens. You know, you look at, you know, 9-11, it didn't matter if you're off duty, you were showing up. So same, same idea here. Um, you go into great detail in your book about this. And I, I can't say enough about uh, reading that. And, and I've also had the pleasure of having your friend, Dave Griffin on the show and, and also seeing him talk live. So um, really almost getting two perspectives of the same incident was, was uh, very, very, very powerful. Um, you know, so just having you talked earlier about having to go, you know, have a call and then basically back to normal you're going to take runs again, you know, almost move on from, uh, you know, you're forced to move on from what you just went through all the traumatic events. That's going to follow you for decades later on. And now you're, you're back on the apparatus and you're taking calls again. What, what was that like? Stack it on the pile, man. You ain't got time. You, you just don't have time in our business to sit around and dwell and feel sorry for yourself because you got a job to do. And that's what fucks us up. There's no decompression time. So for me to keep a long story relatively short, um, without going into too, too much detail, you're right. I, I was, I was off duty that day, but I was right down the street because the guy we talked about Shane who had gotten me the job at Charleston fire, he was killed four months to the day prior. And we were honoring him at a golf tournament right down the street when we found out about the Sofa Soup Store fire. Um, being that it wasn't too far away, a lot of the firefighters, we left that golf tournament and went straight there. And you're right, I, the first person I saw on scene was my buddy David Griffin, who was um, the engineer or assistant engineer, first on scene of engine, with Engine 11 pumping the fire. And when I arrived, you know, we found out Lewis, my buddy Lewis was inside missing. And, and at that time, I don't remember how many 
we thought were missing. I want to say it was closer to 20 is what we thought, 18 or 19 guys that we thought were inside that they, they had zero accountability over. Uh, and it, that number dwindled down to nine being confirmed. But, um, yeah, my job that night, and I, could, I do go into detail about what I saw and how it, how it moved me in the book. Um, ultimately, I was assigned to the body recovery team. There were 15 or 20 of us on, on different teams. I don't remember exactly the, 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 the hard number on how many guys, but it, there wasn't a whole lot of us in there. The majority of the guys stayed outside, and, and, and they were doing whatever they were doing outside. I, I don't know because I was inside. Um, but we searched in that building all night literally until the next morning and uh, my my shift started the next morning from the Soka Superstore fire from that site and after we had um found all of our guys we we identified them the best we could they were all um in very bad shape there was no positive id except for one um the others were more of a speculation kind of thing and then they were later identified through the coroner's office um she did a GPS um, location of each body where they fell. And then, you know, they handled that stuff on their end. But anyhow, when we went in that night, we found them all. Lewis was the last one that we, that we found my buddy. And, um, you know, we knew that was him because we had, we had pretty much identified the guys that were there the best way that we could. Um, and we had a really good feeling of who was who. And Lewis was definitely the last one. We pulled him out. And to answer your question, I had to get back on the rig that morning after just putting our guys in the body bag and go do a, do a complete shift 24 hours out of a pretty busy house. And you didn't have time to process this. It's like, hey, let's go back the rig in. I'd been up all night working. I got there around 7.30 that evening. I worked all night until the next morning, so 12, 13 hours on site get back on the rig and you're taking calls. You know, I was a ladder company at times on ladder five at the time. And, um, we're rolling. We're going to fires. We're going to car wrecks. We're going to EMS calls. We're doing whatever we got to do. After you just saw your buddies burn up beyond recognition, you know, and it's, um, now you're going to more worse days of people's lives and stacking that on top of the piles too. And over the, over the years, you go to suicides, you go to murders, you go to all these, these fucking scenes and you just keep stacking that up and stacking that up and stacking that up. And eventually it, it either gets the best of you or it doesn't, man. I don't know how some of these guys uh, stay on the job, but everybody on that team that night, I'm, I know they're, they're no longer there. Maybe with the exception of one, I mean, you can't, I don't know how you mentally are even capable of doing that, of staying after seeing what we saw inside that building. It's, it's one thing as an emergency responder to respond to strangers. And that, that has a whole different effect on you, but it's another when it's your people and you see them in the condition we saw them in, they weren't just dead. They were mutilated by this fire. I mean, it doesn't matter what words I use. It will never, ever, ever drive home what we saw inside of there, ever. It doesn't, you can't pick the perfect words to describe what we found. So 
that does something to you, man. It, it fucks you up when you sleep. It fucks you up when you drive. It fucks you up when you're sitting in your fire station and these flashes of your guys come across. I can remember the exact body position every single one of them's in. I can remember exactly where I was when I saw them, how they were, the emotions that I was having. And I describe that in the book. Um, it's, it's very powerful. It consumes you. It takes over you. And it takes time. Like we say, this has taken 13 years since that incident for me to really start talking about it. You know, that's a long time. And it still fucks with me today. I still see it. But now it's what we get back to when I, when I talk about ownership and acceptance. I can let it control me or I can let it make me better. I've chosen the latter. All right. Uh, last but certainly not least, my buddy Scott Geiselhart. This was uh, back in episode 53. And in this clip that I'm going to play for you, it's just everything is just mounting. It's just accumulating all these different issues, all these, these bad runs, these nightmares, meth use. And uh, Scott finally decides he's going to end it. And he actually pulls the trigger and nothing happens. So he's here talking to us today about this. So I was uh, blessed to have Scott come into town in October and take part in our Miami Valley Fire EMS conference. Uh, the guy nailed it. I mean, it was so powerful, his speech. No PowerPoint. Sat up there for an hour, just told his story. And uh, all the surveys, the valuations, he was he was a top dog. Um, everybody just it was so powerful. They 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 loved and and thanked how courageous he was to share everything he went through. So without further ado, here's Scott Geiselhart. You just you were taking all these different traumatic incidents and really personalizing them and putting putting the blame on yourself. Yeah, that has to add up and add up. And I mean, um, my buddy Travis just talks about stacking it up on the pile, stacking another one up on the pile. And it just, like you said, I think you said it earlier that, that, that cup spilled over. Yeah. Yeah. I I definitely had enough. So what was, go ahead. Sorry. You know, and then as time went on, you know, my girlfriend moved out. She just had enough. I mean, the anger was just, its it was intense. I mean, and she didn't have to do anything. I'd just get, I'd blow up. And same with my kids. And it's, you know, it got to the point where in 2014, when I went over to the apartment and I blew up at them and yelled at them and, and I left there and said, what kind of monster am I? I, I just walked in the room and it took everything out on them and it had nothing, nothing had, it wasn't their fault. And um, July of 2014, when I left that apartment, I went back down to my shop, which is just a couple blocks away. And yeah, when I went into my shop, I, I, I remember telling myself all the way down there that I got to stop myself. I got to, I got to quit this because I'm gonna have a split personality and I'm gonna black out and I'm gonna go on a shooting rage or something. I'm gonna hurt people. That's how far gone I felt like I was. And all this meth I was putting in my body, it's like, this isn't me. You know, I've, I've just got to, I got to destroy this monster I became. And that's when I went down to my shop and sat down on my desk and reached into the drawer and grabbed out my 44 Magnum and put it to my head and I squeezed the trigger and the hammer came down and, and clicked. And um, didn't, uh, didn't fire any rounds off. 
as a revolver. Um, it's supposed to be foolproof. It, that was going to be, yeah, it wasn't going to be half-assed. It was going to do a lot. It was going to take my head off. I didn't think about, you know, open casket. I didn't think about a suicide note. I had all my insurance papers laid out for quite a while. And my, in fact, my insurance papers would pay out on a suicide after the first two years of the policy. So, I mean, where's a million dollars sitting there for him? And that's, that's what I figured. At least I can give him a million dollars that, you know, she can go find a new guy and my kids can have a decent dad, you know, and you get to that point in your life. I mean, I, I just, I mean, it hurts inside when I just think about how far down I went to where I actually thought people were better off without me and that I have to destroy myself. Well, that does it for this bonus episode, episode 71 of the 25 live. Once again, my name is Jim Bernica. I can't thank these guests enough for just, just putting it all out there. Just again, being so courageous, um, knowing that what they dealt with will hopefully help others throughout the fire EMS uh, community. So, um, I hope everybody had a good Christmas. Hope they have a happy new year and look for new content from me coming out in uh, 2021. Take care.